So we're continuing on in our book of Acts, and you know the, the title of our series has been called Experiencing the Greatness of God Together as a Community. Um, and today we're going to talk about Acts 2, 42 to 47, which was the first church. Um, so it's a really exciting thing to get to see. Uh, it's sort of like what the first church was like. Um, I think church over the years, over the centuries, over the millennia has changed a lot, you know, and there's a lot of things we associate with church, for example, like buildings that they did not associate with before. Um, and, and there's a lot of things, you know, I think that kind of get in the way that sometimes obscure um, what kind of what the heart of church really is. Um, but I think there's something encouraging that we can take away from when we look at the first church, this church that immediately was birthed out of this incredible movement of God, this Pentecost is pouring out of his spirit. As we look into this, I think, um, I'm hoping that as we look into it, we can also um, be encouraged for our own church uh, to think about what the heart of church really is. So I have a few things that, oh, let me read the passage for us first, and then I'm, I'll show us what we're going to talk about today. Um, Acts 2, 42 to 47, it says, and they, this is the, the people that immediately had become Christian after Peter's sermon at the Pentecost, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to fellowship the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. <clears throat> and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. So that's our passage for today. So I want to talk about the marks of this first church. And the first one I would say, it's very simple. Um, this first church was marked by a powerful experience of the gospel. A powerful experience of the gospel. When we look at it, it says, awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done to apostles. One of the first qualities of the church was wonder, um, was wonder. They were always in amazement at what was going on. You know, yes, at these wonders and signs that I talked about two weeks ago that, you know, that, that God was doing, these physical miracles, these tongues that were happening. But I think more than that, you know, more than just these wonders and signs, I think they were amazed at the gospel. They were amazed at this message that Peter had just preached to them. Um, and they were, and, and it resulted in, as we saw, as we glad, generous hearts, praising God. And no one had to tell them they had to go to church. You know, no one had to drag them anywhere. You know, um, you know, it was a time when every time they went to the church, they would experience and they would encounter amazing things, wonderful things that would leave them hungry and thirsty for more. And so they were going, it says day by day, they're attending it together. They're glad and generous, you know, they see God move and they're praising God. And that was kind of the rhythm of what was going on in that early church. So I want to talk about what that joy was for them. Yes, that God was doing miracles, for sure. That was part of it. Um, but, I, you know, I think more, more than that, I think more at the core of what they were joyful was, was the amazement at the message of the gospel. Um, this, is the, this is from the previous passage, uh, previous part that, uh, that, that Phil talked about earlier last week. Um, here's Peter's message to them. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And so they were experiencing the presence of the Holy Spirit, not just this theoretical presence, 
but this real presence of knowing God. Um, and they were amazed by that. And I think the heart of the gospel is in here um, when it says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. I think about how crazy it was that many of three, 4,000 people that probably came to Christ that day and formed the early church were, were, were a part of that core crowd that were shouting for Jesus to be crucified. I mean, can you imagine the <laughs> incredible transform, transformation you must, you must experience when you go from in a matter of days, you know, you know having someone, you know, shouting, um, you know, I don't know why, out of some sense of vindict, you know, some sense of viciousness or some hatred or some just desiring to see a spectacle or whatever it was, you know, wanting um, this man to be crucified. And then days later, realizing you just killed God, <laughs> like, you just killed God. Like, how, how more badly could you possibly mess up, right? And Peter telling you, you know, repent, be baptized, you can be forgiven. No matter what, you literally did the, the worst possible thing you could do, and yet you can still be forgiven. And not only that, but God wants to pour out his Holy Spirit for you. The promise is for you and your children, for everyone who's far off. There's no boundary for what it was. So I think there was this incredible joy at all these kinds of people from all these different walks of life. You know, people who had called crucified Christ, people who were, you know, thieves, who were robbers, who were adulterers, who, you know, were Pharisees, probably a lot, you know, um, people from just all different kinds of places who were recognizing their sin together and they were coming to experience the forgiveness of God. And I think in that moment, I think as they were experiencing it, I think they tasted something of God's love for them. I think they tasted something about how extravagant God's love was that if you can forgive me, then wow, <laughs> there's, there's nothing I could do to, to stray away from this incredible love that I found. I think that's the heart of the church, is it not? That's why, you know, for the, you know if you're in Christ, that's why you're here. And that's why you first came to believe, hopefully, right? That's why you woke up, you know, at whatever, 8, 7.30 in the morning or whatever, and or for the students, maybe a little later, you know, and, and slogged your way over here on a cold, you know, wind, rainy day. Like, you know, hopefully it's because you've experienced something of a love of God for yourself. I think one example, I, you know, I was just thinking about when I was praying over this was John Newton, you know, and, and this man was, um, he's, a, he's famous for writing, you know, perhaps the most famous Christian worship song of all time, right? Amazing Grace. Um, you know, and, and he was, he was a wretched man, like, he was not a good man, you know, and, um, uh, you know, if you read kind of his story, you know, he goes from, um, from this sort of this first, this sailor, this uncouth sailor, um, he calls himself a blasphemer, um, to this, like, slave trader, right, um, and, and, and over, over the, you know, over the course of his life, um, God changes him, and so, so transforms his life, that he becomes known, um, he becomes a pastor, and he becomes known for his tenderness. Um, in a later day, he, you know, he completely renounces his part in the slave trade, and you know, he joins William Wilberforce, you know, in 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 the sort of the early beginnings of the abolition movement in Britain. Um, and, and you know, one of the interesting things by his friends and biographers, you know, one of the things they always noted about Newton, you know, this is the transformation of this man, um, was his tenderness. Uh, more than anything else, they're like, this man was a tender man. And they talk about his friendship with another hymn writer named William Cowper, who was this incredibly depressed man. Like this, this man who struggled with perhaps like the most intense form of depression, who 
you know, who had, um, you know, almost committed suicide many times, um, you know, and who this person who, you know, even though he knew God, he was ex experiencing the darkness, you know, for most of his life. And he, and he talks about just how patient and how loving and how faithful Newton was as a friend to Cowper um, and to, um, and, and, and eventually he ended up opening his house and, you know, it became like some would describe like kind of asylum for those who were mentally ill and struggling. And, and Newton was known for his patience, for his love. Um, and, and where did that all come from? Like, where did that, that transformation and that change from, from you know, this barbaric man, um, from this evil man to this tender man, where did that come from? Well, you know, Newton writes about it, right, in this song. Um, amazing grace, how great the sound that saved a wretch like me. He really did believe that he was a wretch. These are not just words. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. You know, this was his experience, right? That, you know, once upon a time, I, I was far off from God. I did not know the Lord. Um, but God loved me and showed me his love even when I did not deserve it. Amazing grace. How, how amazing is it? How wonderful is it? Um, you can see and you can feel the wonder in his voice, right? Um, in his words that he writes. Another person, um, I was supposed to bring the book, <laughs> but in my anxiety this morning, I forgot. You know, I, I remember this is a little bit more personal to me, but a few years back, I was, you know, somebody handed me this devotional book. It was called Saving Grace. Um, you know, and, you know, at some point I was just bored. And I was just reading the introduction to this book. Uh, it was a little devotional book, this yellow book. I was reading the introduction. All of a sudden, as I was reading about this man, Jack Miller, I just started to cry. <laughs> I was like, you know, and I, to be honest, I didn't really get much about the actual devotions. I read the actual devotions later and I was like, yeah, they're good, you know, but for some reason it was the introduction. It was written by his wife. And the introduction was, um, you know, it's just his wife's testimony, you know, and, and his wife was like, yeah, y'all all know Jack Miller. Here's this professor at Westminster. You know him as this, you know, as this mentor figure for many of you guys, as this warm, friendly, you know, as this person who's preached really much about the grace of God, who seems to be saturated with this sense of God's love. And his wife was like, you know, I know that he wasn't always like that. <laughs> like he really wasn't, you know, and, and she talks to me, she chronicles like, you know, about his early years, you know, struggling as a minister, you know, being bitter at himself, being bitter at his congregation, just having no grace, you know, um, and, and he, she talks about how he had this transformative experience at some point in his life. He realized that, like, the problem wasn't with everybody. The problem was with himself. Um, and that, you know, he was very good at, as he was, like, pointing out pride in everybody else but himself. Um, so he goes off and he spends some time with the Lord and, and he experiences the gospel, perhaps richly for the first time. And, and this guy was a seminary professor and a pastor before this, right? So it's not like he didn't know about the gospel. And it said that it transformed his life when he came to know God's love. And instantly afterwards, he became a different person. You know, he was known for his warmth, his love. His home became, again, a lot of times this happens, you know, um, this sort of this open place for um, all kinds of people to gather, to be. Um, he naturally started to um, just do a lot of things for um, the refugees in the city. I mean, he just was concerned about the poor. Like, there was just a change in his heart that didn't come from just like, you know, I got to do the right things when you do these things. You know, and, and this is one of his famous quotes that he says, cheer up, you're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. And yet, you're more loved than you ever dared to hope. 
And when I read about Jack Miller, that gave me hope, you know, because that was, I was first, that was like one or two years in the ministry. And I felt like crap. <laughs> like, I did not feel good. I did not feel like I knew God's love. I was going through just a lot of just rough things in the church. There's a lot of just division, a lot of conflict. I felt like every day I was just putting out fires. You know, I was bitter at people. I was bitter at myself. When I read about that introduction, I cried because it gave me hope. And my hope was that perhaps the problem isn't that I'm not good enough. That I need to just somehow be better, somehow be more loving. Perhaps the problem with me is that I've simply not experienced God's love deep enough. And that gave me hope to be like, maybe there's hope that maybe there's change. Maybe if I experience God's love deeper, um, yeah, like, you know, that will be what will change me. And so it actually encouraged me a lot, you know, when I thought about that, when I read that. So the early church was marked by a powerful experience of the gospel, right? It was real in their lives. They were seeing it happen before their eyes. They were seeing people who did not deserve, frankly, to be in the presence of God, repenting and turning away um, from whatever they were doing before. Um, and it was creating this awe um, in front of it in the whole church. And we see what it resulted in. And this is what always seems to happen when results in people experiencing the gospel was radical love and generosity, radical love and generosity. See here in Acts, all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I mean, that's, that's, that's crazy, right? Like, how many people do you know who do that, right? Acts 4 explains more. You know, it says, just, just in case it wasn't clear enough, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And I've, you know, just, you know, the dot, dot, dot there, I just trying to fit everything on the screen, so... God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needing, needy persons among them. For that time to, from, from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So I don't know, I, this looks like communism to me, right? Um, early form of communism, right? Um, but if you think about it, it's like, here's what I think is amazing about this. And here's where I think a lot of times we go wrong. We look at this and we're like, boy, do we need to do that? Like, that makes me nervous. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I want to do that, right? But we miss the point when we approach it from that perspective. This wasn't something that Christ had mandated. You know, Christ did not teach that if you want to follow me, you got to sell your house. You know what I mean? Um, he sometimes challenged people to do such things, but he did not mandate those things. And I don't think neither did the apostles. This is not the way that's talked about. It wasn't the apostles like, all right, you're joining a cult now. Now you got to, you know, everything that you, you know, this is not a power dynamic. This was a spontaneous movement that arose because people were experiencing the gospel so much that this is what they ended up doing. Like no one, no one had to tell them that, right? Like no one had to be like, you know, maybe you should think about like sharing what you had with the, you know, and that's, that brings me back again, that this is all about the powerful experience of the gospel because it's not something you can just make people do and nor that we should, you know, because if we're not there, it could be a very harmful thing. It was a measure of how deep God's love had penetrated into their hearts that no longer they were thinking about just me. You know, instantly they were thinking about, wow, God has loved me so much that I cannot help but love my fellow brothers, fellow sisters, these people who I didn't know before, people from all kinds of different walks of life. You know, I cannot help but love them. I cannot help but see them as my own. An astounding generosity. 
John for, you know, it talks about kind of, again, I love this passage because it explains where this kind of love came from, this rare type of love that rarely we ever do see, like Ezra Frank, right? We never see these kinds of things usually. Um, John Ford, you know, he reinforces that idea, right? He talks about this. He says, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. It's not love comes from you. Love comes from you being a great Christian. Love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. It's natural. Everyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So here's a measure for whether you know the Lord, whether you've experienced God or not. Do you love? If you don't know, if you don't love, then that's an indication that there's something wrong about how you're perceiving God and his love. This is how God showed his love among us, right? He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And here's the clearest demonstration of love that God gave the most precious person in the universe over to be crucified, to be a sacrifice so that we might be loved, so that we would understand the magnitude of his love for us as a sacrifice for our sins. So maybe this is something to think about. What does overflowing in love look like? And I left this slide blank. And I could think of some examples, but I feel like that could go wrong, you know, because it could just be like, do this and do that. Um, I really do think this comes from our experience of the gospel. But I do want you to think about as you are experiencing God's love for you, what does overflowing in love look like for you? It may not look like selling your house. And, you know, I, I don't know, you know, in our, it may look like that, <laughs> you know, but in our context, you know, I think, you know, there perhaps are differences, you know, where, I don't know, this is something I'm still working through, honestly, in my mind, like, what is the application here, you know, and I, I would say that it does not always have to be so extreme as what was there, but I think it should challenge us to think about how we ought to love, how we ought to overflow in love, um, and I want to leave the application up to you, uh, because I cannot honestly think, I don't know what that looks like, and I'm still wrestling with that, and I, I don't know, you know, and that's, that's something we can be praying about is what would radical love, love look like in our church? What would it look like for us to radically love? I don't know. Powerful experience of the gospel, radical love and generosity. Third, we see a third mark of this early church was a, a very supernatural unity and togetherness. Unity and togetherness that marked them. Look what it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And the word the fellowship here is, you know, the word that people commonly talk about, it's koinonia, right? And, it's, and it indicates something, um, it's kind of hard to describe kind of what it means, um, but it's this basic idea of sharing, of oneness, right? Um, it's this idea of um, intimacy in some ways, but intimacy not, not because of something else, but because of the shared bond of knowing Christ. And so we see what happened was that not only did their experience of the gospel give them a greater intimacy of God's love for them, it gave them a greater intimacy with each other, right? Not only did it cause them to pour out a radical love, but it changed how they saw their own relationships. It changed the level of closeness that they had. 
Um, and that's an amazing thing that we see with this early church. We see here that it says, all who believed were together. This, this word is repeated so much in this passage. And all had things in common. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. Suddenly, all of a sudden, you know, these are people that did not know each other previously. You know, these are people that perhaps some of them were zealots, you know, that's, you know, the extreme sort of rebels that were trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. And there are people who are tax collectors, people very were people working for the Roman Empire. You know, they were, it said that Jews and people from almost every nation gathered because this was Jerusalem, right? This was the pilgrimage place where you'd come. And can you imagine, you know, and, and later on in scripture it talks about, you know, like barbarian and Scythian and Greek and Jew and slave and free and, and, and all of that. And it says here, you know, here's, here's not any of those anymore. There's Christ, you know, all are in Christ. And we see that here, a supernatural unity that you, you can't just get by making people get along, right? That they were experiencing as a result of the gospel. It says, day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, you see this warm sense of fellowship, this warm sense of living life together. That they didn't just go to church on Sundays and were like, hi, hope you have a good week. You know, good luck to whatever you're going through. And I'll see you next Sunday. You know, that, that was not, that was not how they lived life. You know, they, they were constantly in each other's lives, you know, all the time, eating with each other, talking with each other, encouraging each other, giving to each other as anyone had need, praying for each other, supporting each other. This was just something that overflowed um, from what they were experiencing. I think about that for my life, and I think about some of the friends that I've had the joy of being able to have, some of the people that I would consider are the most important people in my life. Um, picture on the left is my class some of my class, this is like an alumni picture um, from, from college. And picture on my right are some of the people I spent a lot of time with in pandemic because we all lived together and it was rough at times, but we got to know each other very well, you know. But I think about all these things and I, and I could tell you that a lot of these people, you know, here and there are other people that, you know, that aren't on these pictures. Most of these people, all of them, including my wife, are not people I would have known or I would have spent a lot of time with if it weren't for Christ. There are people who are very different in interests to me, different in personalities to me. Um, I just, you know, even one of them, you know, I just want to mention like Richard, for example, like, you know, who served with me for so many years as a co-pastor. Boy, you, he and I have very different personalities, right? And it wasn't just something that just happened because we're all like, oh, you know, like, you like watching movies? I like watching movies too. It was something that was forged through walking with Christ together. Um, I remember Josh, you know, um, the guy in the middle, the white guy with the beard, <laughs> you know, just, just like, just, you know, walking with him as he was um, going through some of the hardest times in his life in college. I remember just crying with him. Um, you know, I want to share particularly what he was going through. I think that's his life, but um yeah, just watching like a major transition happen in his life. And those are things we did together. You know, when I had an anxiety attack in 2015 or whatever, these are the people, you know, and more people that aren't here um, who walked me through that, you know, who, who hugged me and held my hand as I was freaking the heck out. You know, I, I've experienced, I think, a deeper fellowship. Um, I, I, you know, I can th I'd be thankful to say in the last 10 years, and I, you know, and I think it's a result of Christ, right? It's a result of what he has done in my life. 
And finally, we see as a mark of the first church was transformation and growth. This was no static church. This is no church that just stayed and it's the same people. And it was like, hey, Joe, how are you doing? Okay, same old, you know, it wasn't that. It was a dynamic church that was constantly growing and being stretched. See, in Acts 2, 42, 47, it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to breaking of the bread and the prayers. I think about that word devoted, that sense of devotion, right? Um, which is this kind of single-minded pursuit of something, right? The single-minded kind of sense of, I'm going to focus on this. And that's one of the things that I think was critical to the growth of this early church, that it wasn't just that they had this one powerful experience with God and that was it, but that they kept pursuing God. They kept wanting more. And they're like, I've experienced God a little bit, but I want more. And I won't stop until I have more. And so we see here, they devoted themselves to the apostleship, to the fellowship, to breaking the bread, almost in a perhaps even an obsessive way. And they put aside everything that got in the way. I don't know if you've ever experienced like something like this, where something has so taken over your life that you almost forget about everything else, where everything else just seems not as important or not as interesting, right? Um, perhaps for some of you guys, it was the birth you know, of, of your children, you know, where it's just like, you know, all of a sudden, some of the things I cared about before, like, I don't give a crap about those things anymore. You know, this sense of devotion, because something superior has supplanted what you had before. And that was what characterized them. They continued to pursue and they continued to want more from God. And we see the results, this incredible growth, the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. They started with some 3000 people and this early church, this early movement of God became, was, became the fertile ground for Christianity as we see it today. Isn't it so crazy that every Christian that you've ever known in your life, every church that you've ever been to can be traced back to this one church. This one church in AD, I don't know, 34 or something, you know, um, that spawned a global movement, right? A tr truly global movement um, that today, I mean, I don't know, there's billions probably perhaps of Christians. The Lord adds to the number day by day, those who are being saved. Um, and I, I rejoice the fact that we also get to be a part of that. But who knows how God is using us, how God is using the ways that we work and we love and we are faithful to one another to do things that we could possibly never imagine. I'm sure these people can never imagine um, 2,000 years in the future. This is one of the convictions I've been having recently about ministry. And I just want to share this with you guys. It's it's related, <laughs> you know, but for me, as I think about church growth, um, there are exciting things. I feel like our church is in a stage of growing right now. One of the things I feel like the Lord has been just challenging me about, though, is quality over quantity. Um, and I think that's something that this church did not sacrifice. This church was not just, you know, growing at this immense speed because they were going out there and just trying to pull people in and, you know, using all kinds of, you know, swindling and bait and switch methods you know, to, to bring people in. No, that was not how that church was growing. This is the Lord added to them. They were just being faithful. They were just loving one another. And people were coming because it's like, this is lit. Like, I got to be a part of this, you know? So it says, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in less. This is what God, I think, has been challenging me about, even in my ministry. Love well, 
You don't have to love a ton of people because that's impossible, right? Love a few well, you know, and really like, don't be a hypocrite. <laughs> that's what God is challenging me these days is don't be a hypocrite because it's so easy to be one, you know, like go for quality over quantity. Um, and if you're faithful with little, you will also be faithful with much. Um, so I don't think we are called to worry about growth. I don't think we're called to artificially make stuff happen. I think that is something that just happens as a result of us faithfully pursuing the Lord in love. So my prayer for us today, that we would together pursue and experience the extravagant love of God for us. That's where it all started, remember guys, from the experience of the gospel in a way that would shape and transform our community to overflow in love, radical generosity, and radical hospitality. Um, boy, I don't even know what that looks like, and I can't even tell you. You know, but I know that it is possible, and I know it starts from experiencing God's love for us. So let me pray for us. Lord, Lord, I just, but even as I got shared these words, Lord, I, I feel like they're just too much for me, Lord, that Honestly, even as I share these things, I feel a sense of guilt and a sense that, yeah, that I, I don't know how to live out this incredible calling. God, I know my love, my personal love is so scarce, Lord. And Lord, all I can do right now is, I don't even think I can be an example, Lord. I don't think I love. But Lord, I just, all I can do right now is just to give you that, Lord. Because I, I'm believing in your words that when you said in First John that it's you that loved us first. And God, you know how fearful I am, how, how much I love comfort, how much I am so afraid of stepping outside anything that is of norm. And also, Lord, my prayer is that, yeah, that, that you would change me, that you would transform me by your love. And even now, I'm reminded that, God, I don't need that to be loved by you because I already am. And so, Lord, I pray for, I pray for me and I pray for anyone else who feels the same way that, God, that you would help us to live in freedom. That you would help us to no longer be insecure about whether we're loved, whether we're good enough. Lord, I pray that you would just touch our hearts, Lord, right now and later. Yeah, even right now, God, would you just show us sense of your love, perhaps for some of us that we've never even felt before, God. Lord, as Jack Miller talked about, that we are, we're loved more than we could ever dare to hope. That we're not just loved in a way that is satisfactory or adequate to us. We're loved beyond that. It's not just this, you know, small flow of love, but it's an overwhelming tide that you have to hold back because it would overwhelm us, Lord.
that's how good you are and that's how loving you are. And I pray that we would experience more of that today, Lord, even as we worship, even as we take communion, God. I just pray for those of us who are hurting, God, who, who need healing, Lord. I don't know. Those of us who are just struggling, Lord, I just pray that in this moment that you would touch us, our hearts, Lord. That you would meet us, Lord, even in our cynicism, even in our brokenness, our skepticism, our doubt. So, Lord, I pray for that. And I thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen.